0: Well, welcome all you wiretappers back here in the studio of Gangland Wire with the second episode with Robert Major, who was the original infiltrator, if you saw the movie with Brian Cranston, it's a great movie, go watch it, it's, it's streaming on one of the streaming channels, I just watched it again the other day. And today he's going to tell about his next case after that first infiltrator case. And it's going to end up being a movie, too. There's no doubt about it. He's got a book out right now called The Betrayal. That's about it. And in this next case, he's going to talk about how he goes down to Panama and he's laundering money for Colombian cartel people again. And he's got a DEA agent that's ratting him out the whole time. So let's sit back and listen to Robert Mazer. Now, let's uh, let's move on to. Uh, your second book, the betrayal and that, that tagline on that, uh, uh, your breast with death, uh, you already had a few brushes with death. You must have had even closer brushes with death than the betrayal now, but uh, that was a, a second case a few years after the infiltrator case, correct?
1: Yeah. When uh, the infiltrator went down, um, I spent the next two years preparing for and testifying in trials. So trials around the United States and trials over in uh, the UK. Um, The longest trial in Tampa was six months. And I was on the witness stand from the middle of March to the middle of June. Um, It was uh, it's got it should be in the Guinness Book of Records. I don't think anybody testified for three months before. (laughs) But anyway, um, so but near the end of that, um, I was approached by the the assistant special agent in charge of the Tampa DEA office. And he knew that I was interested in moving on to another agency. At that stage, I had burned a few bridges to say the least. Um, there was some internal squabbling about, in my view, uh, an, un- an, an, un- an unreasonable withdrawal of resources from, um, the infiltrator matter at the time that it was most important to keep them. And, um, so, but anyway, uh, so he said, you know, we'd really like to do it long-term you see up like what you just did. And, you know, are you willing to come over to DEA? And I said, well, Mike, um, here's two things. One, my daughter's got two years before she starts college. So I would really want to be in Tampa. I can't, I can't move them yeah. now. They've been through hell. So I really want to be in Tampa. And two, I can't take a pay cut. I was, a." Uh, GS 13, step 10, which was the highest you could be on the street. And I had no interest in being a supervisor. Uh, I said, you know just I just need to be lateral, pay, pay lateral over. And I don't think that that had been done before. Uh, but Mike is an amazing leader, and uh, he got that done. So then I went on to uh, the DEA Academy, um, went through Quantico. Got some time, but not a lot of time, uh, maybe about six months to put together the new front, new identity, uh, embedded in businesses again, that type of thing. And this time we were going after the Cali cartel, which is only a few hundred miles uh, away from from Medellin. But so many people that I had dealt with had been killed. Um, and then the Medellin cartel by that time um, was somewhat on the run that um that that I thought that this was something that I could do and and they also wanted me to infiltrate some underworld people, some panamanian underworld people, so uh, I after we got the u c front together, uh, we started that operation, we had tremendous success right out of the right out of the block uh, my informant in Colombia introduced us to two money brokers in Bogota who. New Miguel Rodriguez Orjuela, the head of the Cali Cartel, and many of the other major Cali guys. These guys were really, really polished. They had a finance company in Bogota that managed on, on the surface, managed the affairs of dozens and dozens of import-export companies that were fronts for the repatriation of narco-dollars back into uh colombia and they were working very closely with about 10 banks in colombia um the major one of which that i i started dealing with uh, was banco cafetero and and so i was dealing with officers in banco cafetero who were corrupt and who were intentionally laundering this money they were later charged and uh, i actually the guy pled guilty but um the uh All of a sudden, though, things started not to go that well with the two guys from Bogota that I'd met. And I had met them with um, a guy who was uh, 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 assigned to DEA. And little did I know, uh, later on, and I don't want to give too much of the book away because I try to keep it a little bit suspenseful, but one of my colleagues, uh, two years before I even got there, Was already um, moving dope, laundering money, selling information, and at the worst possible time, he outed me to the higher ups in the Cali cartel. Wow! And
0: now, Robert, uh, let me let me ask you one question. Now, you said by by UC front, your undercover front Uh for folks. Now, what did you guys start a business? Did you like open up a some kind of a, a financial services business or, or some kind yeah. of a, of what, what was that? Uh, like sure. Get a, get a storefront, kind of the technical aspects of that. Yeah.
1: Know. No, no storefronts. I, I, I I'm a firm believer of, you know, businesses have to operate like real businesses five days a week. And, and so what I did, I had a very good friend in the financial sector who had just shut down um, an investment company mm. And a mortgage business. And so I used uh, a law firm where a former prosecutor was then at. And on paper, we bought it. So it was two companies that had seven years of history to them. I say I got all the records of those companies, filled up the uh, the new location that we opened up for it in Sarasota. It was a trade finance company so it worked out perfect for the cali cartel who were laundering principally through uh, fake export transaction documentation Um, and me having a company that was a trade finance business we could come up with a very believable cover and paperwork that made everything look legitimate so and i had um a ci who was i had a source who was uh, who ran that? Who was in that physical location with another person every single day? I was there whenever whenever I wasn't in Panama. I was uh, almost always in that office in Sarasota. So, um, but I had uh, I spent a lot of time in Panama, um, and I had a little suite in um, the El Panama Hotel that I operated from there, and a and some bad guys who had formed companies for me in Panama that, uh,
0: that I was dealing with. So um, even now, though we did let me ask one other quick question about that. Now, did you do other legitimate business at the same time, try to find some little pieces of legitimate business you could do, or did you just not do anything but focus on uh, working with the uh, cartels and laundering their money?
1: No, the, well, the cartel thought that we were, you know, doing all types of other things, but right. no, we we weren't. we weren't really doing. Okay. You know, it's not like you opened up a money service business and you, you know, you you check you you okay. cash checks for people and stuff like that. We had so much money movement and paper that was moving around just for dealing with the the Cali cartel okay. that th- you really wouldn't have had enough time to okay. <laughs> to be able to do <laughs> too much else. So, um, I got you.
0: So yeah. now now let's go let's go back to you you've been compromised or at least somewhat compromised by a rogue DEA agent and you're in Panama a lot which means you don't have that much backup i don't imagine in panama
1: right yeah and um and i was not only there i was in colombia so uh and the two guys who knew who i was and at that stage i had my suspicions but you know, we, we didn't have anything that we could really nail down. So um, I went down to Columbia because I really, at that stage, so I was told at the time, and I don't know for certain that this is the case, but I, this, at least this is, I can guarantee you, this is what I was told that at that stage. Um, and that was, I went down to Columbia in 1992. So at that stage, they told me that there had not been anyone working undercover there in eight years, and it was forbidden to do that. Um, and actually, that was one of the things the corrupt officer told told the uh, uh, Cali people that you know agents couldn't go down there. Uh. So, so I I got to go down, and um, I held court at a really nice restaurant most of the day um we scattered our uh, appointments out throughout the day and the two guys that unbeknownst to me at that time knew I was a DEA agent were trying their damnedest to get me to stay they were really bad guys and they really had some powerful uh, connections they'd been kidnapped many times themselves um i'm confident that if we didn't stick with our plan um, and I didn't leave when I was gonna when I was supposed to leave. That uh, they probably would have tried to kidnap me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that was bad. And then the Panama thing was bad. But then there came a time we got absolute proof. Um, I received information. We, our Fort Lauderdale office had a non testifying informant, a female who was at the highest levels of the Cali cartel and dealing with many, many uh, of the owners of the money. And she was in a meeting when one of the two guys that I had met that I told you before were starting to get squirrely with me. Yeah. And that guy said, boy, you're not going to believe what we've got. We've got this cop on a take. Yeah. And we know that this guy in Sarasota is a DEA agent and blah, 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 blah. And she reported that back to her handlers. Her handlers called us. It was no doubt. Now, based on the details she gave us, it was, it was who we thought it was. And But I, I became obsessed at that time to be a part of the evidence collection to make sure that that cop got as much prison time as possible. And uh, so I, I begged my boss, and he allowed me to continue for three months to work undercover. I was allowed to go back to Panama, but I had to have a little more cover than I did before. Um, And, but we were told, but I was told, you know, you're getting 90 days and that's it, man. Um, 90 days, we're taking this thing down. So I wound up disinformation him for um, a time and uh, we were able to get a lot of very good stuff. Right near the end, we... uh, it became, he's trying to, he's, he approaches me. Oh man, buddy. I like, we haven't been together in so long. Let's go out for lunch. And, <laughs> and um, I knew thanks to Joe Pistone and other people who trained me. Uh, I knew that the last question he was going to ask me before we left that meeting was going to be the most important question in his mind. Yeah. And so as we were getting ready, To leave and he insisted on picking up the tab. And he's looking in his wallet. And he says, Hey, you know, have you guys decided when you're going to take down that that undercover up? I said, (laughs) So, and I was ready for it. Yeah. And I said, uh, now this is probably in January. So I said, Man, this is gonna be great. We've got we're gonna have tickets in June to the World Cup in Orlando. And these guys are going to be falling over each other, trying to get tickets and we're going to put them up in hotels and their family's going to be able to go to Disney world and all yeah. this other stuff. So he ran with that. Yeah. And uh, about two months later, when we took the case down, my boss called him and said, uh, Hey, let's get together. Uh I, I, you know, and I, some things changed. We, we have, we have to move fast. And so he comes into the office and meets with my boss and my boss goes, Gosh, um, we're taking the case down today and, um, we'd really like you to join us for a victory drink tonight. Uh, and by the way, you know, one of those two guys from Bogota that you met, he's at the hotel. He, uh, we found out from customs, he's, uh, he's in the country and he's going to be staying at the Doral beach resort. And, um, so we've got a team out there and we'll be collaring his butt. And um, he goes, come on, well, you know, how about hanging out with us for a while? And uh, the cop goes, oh, you know, I got, I got so many reports I got to do. And <laughs> yeah. So he gets in his car. Little does he know, we've got an Air Force up there <laughs> yeah. with a gyro camera. And, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so he goes to a payphone, then he goes to another payphone, then he goes to another payphone. And then he meets with some local Colombians uh-huh. who are working with the Cali cartel and he's he's talking to them and the guy goes why the hell would they tell you i'll bet you they followed your ass right here you better come <laughs> up with some good answers for why you're here because so um so anyway we i don't want to give too much more away we, we had to do a lot you. of other things and and um uh and and then he uh eventually got 11 years in prison wow so yeah. um that was a good thing yeah that
0: was because i i i know we we tried to take off a corrupt guy and it's a small deal but it's really hard to take off a cop when there's a lot it's just like information that's going around and and to get somebody to testify if you don't have some face-to-face person to talk with him and give him money just gathering it on circumstantial it's really tough we had a guy that he picked up some money we followed him and followed him and we're getting it was marked and, and serial numbers recorded and, and we were going to get him at the station. And guess what? That evening, he didn't have the money. We don't know what he did with it. So it's really tough because they, wow. they, they got their antenna up all the time for, for yeah. other law enforcement. It's, those cases are hard to make. Yeah. Well, that's uh, <laughs> that was yeah, pretty but you know,
1: As I wrote the betrayal, though, I really came to the conclusion that that was kind of, that's the obvious betrayal, but the there are deeper betrayals that I learned as a result of completing that second operation. You know, five years working undercover um, with major criminal organizations. It's obvious to me that um, unfortunately, and I guess I think they credit Albert Einstein with this, you know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. And we do the same thing over and over in this war against drugs, and yeah. um, we need to look in the mirror and recognize that there's some very critical things that, uh, that need to change. Um, the fact of the matter is that when it comes to illicit funds around the world, um, the United Nations on Drugs and Crime calculated it with help from all the member nations at about $2 trillion a year. Mm-hmm. So $2 trillion a year. I mean, you're talking about everything from tax evasion to drug trafficking, and illegal, illegal arms dealing, pilfering treasuries, dealing with sanctioned nations, all that good stuff. So um, of that, $400 billion, they estimate, is the, the annual receipts for the sale of illegal drugs. Well, when you go to the Department of Justice asset forfeiture website and look at, at asset seizures and, and get into the nitty gritty... Um, of that 400 billion, in the best of years, the the U.S government can't boast of taking more than a billion. Mm-hmm. That's one-fourth of one percent. Mm-hmm. Globally, I don't think I think 98 percent goes totally unseen, which is why the coffers of these criminal organizations grow exponentially, and corruption, which is their most lethal right. um, uh, product, is growing at that same rate. And who'd have thought that it would be typical to say, as it is in 2021 last year, okay, DEA is working on a case and they're trying to identify this very mythical, mystical, uh, mystical uh, person who's referred to on calls as El Padrino, the godfather, and um, he's helping them to get routes to take dope into the US. He's compromising law enforcement. He's doing all kinds of stuff. And eventually they identify him and he is, um, general Sinfuegos, the minister of defense of the entire country of Mexico. Yeah. Um, and we've just recently indicted the former president of Honduras, uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez, his brothers in prison for the rest of his life, along with about 10 senators from Honduras for selling out their country. Um, we've got major massive problems that um, that relate to this and 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 that also translates to the more than 100,000 deaths last year from fentanyl overdose in the United States this this problem is significantly worse than it was in Pablo Escobar's heyday
0: yeah yeah, it just uh, that. As well, long as they keep the shootouts at the uh, Dade Land Mall down, you know that they don't pay that much. They figured that out, you know. Yep. They Don't we don't pay that much attention unless there's something that grabs their attention in the headlines. So just keep it sub Rosa, so to speak. And, and they're just jillions of dollars to be made. I know I talked to a guy who was actually from Australia and he talked about helping them with a the payoff for a judge down in Mexico, $30 million. And, you know, but when you got that much money to throw around, you know, to, to corrupt people, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing. And that cash money is what you need to corrupt people with. Yeah. And, and um,
1: you know, you can look at the testimony in the El Chapo Guzman trial and the related trials that that occurred not that long ago. And the testimony there from one of the government's witnesses was that Enrique Pena, the former president of Mexico, approached through his people, the Sinaloa cartel, offering El Chapo Guzman uh, safety if he'd pay two hundred and fifty million dollars unfortunately for him, according to the witness, El Chapo moved that down to a hundred million and had it delivered. Um, And and so he lost 150 million out of that, that uh, requested bribe. But, you know, and and there was also testimony about the current president of Mexico before he took office and when he ran in prior years of his being paid massive amounts uh, of money. So, You know, uh, we've got we've got major problems, um, no doubt about it. South of the border, Venezuela, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Mexico, um, Panama, you name it. uh, it, It's hard to tell the good guys from the bad guys.
0: Yeah. And and I can see why you look at the economies down there and the opportunity for people and. You know, I mean, this is huge opportunity. It's just like in the ghettos on the streets in Kansas City or New York or whatever. You don't have much opportunity. You got young, bright men. And, you know, here's an opportunity, kind of like uh, uh, the mafia during Prohibition. I mean, it's a huge opportunity that, you know, otherwise there wasn't that much, opp- that much opportunity for them. I don't, yeah. I don't know. It's tough. I-
1: I don't think we're we're focused enough on the demand side. I mean, I, I know that what we do on the on the supply side is critical. I think we need to um, go after the heads of the snakes, cut them off, and try to disrupt command and control. Um, but too too much of the federal law enforcement uh, resources are applied toward the low hanging fruit of the tree, yeah. Uh, and we wind up filling our prisons uh, with people who are, in some instances. Sick people who are drug users who um, who need to be dealt with in a different way. I mean, it the cheapest. Uh, I mean, I, I did a little bit of research about the cost of of an inmate, and I think that the lowest was like about twenty seven thousand a year, and the highest was like about sixty two thousand a year. But think about that, and we had one point eight million people in prison yeah. uh, in twenty twenty one. So uh, that's why I think, and I know this gets controversial because some people think that. Uh, that it's not going to make a difference. I frankly think that it will, and that is that you know we have offered people free education through high school since my grandparents were were going to high school. Yeah, uh, a long, long period of time. Uh, I think we need to. We I think we need to up the bar, especially for those people who uh, are live in uh, underprivileged, underserved communities. And and I'm not suggesting that anything should be based upon. Anything other than your income and your yeah. ability to be able to educate your children, and in those instances where where they can't, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a big ask no. to 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 uh, provide for individuals to be able to get a state uh, a state college um, tuition uh, through at least the second year, and if you're doing really well, you should be able to get four. Or go to a trade school, or provide education now. This isn't going to stop the supply side. This is going to help us on the demand side. I'd much rather pay sixty two hundred dollars a year to put a kid through college than pay twenty seven or sixty seven thousand dollars a year to maintain him in a prison.
0: Really, I,
1: I, I don't. I don't see the benefit in that, and 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 I recognize that some people think that that's kind of a socialist thinking, but I don't <laughs> think that it is. I, I think I frankly think that. There are segments of our society that do not get an equal opportunity at education or economic equality, and as long as you're going to foster that uh, in those areas, you're going to get a group of people who go, "Here's my options." Yeah, and and just think about how how this could in two generations how this could change things. You take people who then become productive citizens who pay taxes who then have children who then they imp- impart on them that same concept of the importance of education and employment you can have a, a demand side uh, impact we've we've just i think that's a must and and my other musts are I'm tired of seeing banks getting fined for laundering drug money or <laughs> committing criminal offenses HSBC paid 1. $9 billion in fines uh, and got caught red handed laundering money for the Medellin cartel, excuse me, the uh, Sinaloa cartel and the Norte de Valle cartels. And uh, Wachovia Bank, an American bank that was bought by Wells Fargo, got caught in that exact same plan. Uh, and they only got fined and nobody went to prison. Individual responsibility is extremely important. I'll tell you what, I interviewed the BCCI bankers in orange jumpsuits yeah. uh, when they were behind bars and to, a, to a, a hardcore druggie, you know, 12 years isn't a big deal, but I can guarantee you to a polished fingernail banker, yeah, that's a lifetime. That's a and lifetime. that really got them to open their eyes and their mouths mm-hmm. uh, to sharing the truth and unless we attack uh, the corrupt portions of the international banking and business community that uh, that provide money laundering services to these people uh, this this is going to continue to go on and on look at today's world with us trying to sanction putin yeah. the 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 same bankers and lawyers who create all these veils of secrecy are the same ones that help them to hide their corrupt Profits from pilfering the treasuries of Russia, um, there's a lot to be gained by going after these professional money launderers that, that are around the around the world and my last thing in my epilogue that I talk about is corruption. There should be absolutely zero tolerance for corruption. I'm, we need to when, when the corruption occurs, it's like the sinfuegos matter. How do you justify sinfuegos gets arrested in California he's held without bond. This is the defense minister of Mexico within 30 days of crying about it by the president of Mexico, telling Attorney General Barr that, uh, oh, we want we don't we want to protect our own sovereignty. We'll take him back and we will prosecute any crimes that he's committed. And we do that. And within 30 days, they come back and they say "Ah, he didn't do anything wrong. And they
0: let him go. Yeah, that's that's not how corruption should be dealt with. Yeah, that's for sure. It's uh, it's a tough one at, at that level. You know, it's it's uh, easy at the low level. But, boy, at that level, you got too many people on board There, money, you know, money talks and bullshit walks and money does talk. Or as Dylan said, it doesn't talk, it swears. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, it is. It, it's amazing. You know, and, and you're like the third or fourth career drug person. Uh, on the law enforcement side that I've talked to that said, you know, we've been doing this all wrong. We need to change our tactics. We need to do something different. And, and some people talk about also putting a lot of money into treatment and, and dealing with drug addiction on the, uh, you know, more on the street level and really making, you know, a lot more opportunities available for people to to find treatment once they get started, because young people, you know, they just want to feel different. They want to grow up and they want to experiment and, and then when they have a problem with it, they need someplace to go. So it, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a multi uh, fingered thing that we have to do over the next few years. If we're ever going to change anything in that. Yeah. I, I echoed that in my epilogue and,
1: and I have yeah. firsthand knowledge of that because I have two cousins who have overdosed on heroin and one who was on his way um, who yeah. lived in New Jersey and uh, in Camden and, and, and uh, well, Carteret, sorry, Carteret, and I. It took me a month to be able to get him a bed in a state-supported drug treatment program. Um, there just were way too many people, yeah, and way too few beds. Yeah. Um, and it's not that they didn't want to help; it's just they couldn't, based upon the budgets that they were provided. Yeah. Thank goodness he um, he then went from there to a uh, a church-sponsored uh, treatment program and uh, and now actually works as a cook there and um, serves those who are now suffering the way that he was suffering and um, uh, and and so his the end of his story is a good one
0: yeah it is and it's not always that good of an end for a lot of people but and many people go to treatment more than once but sooner or later it'll take more than likely, not always, but uh without it, without any kind of treatment or any options other than continue to use and steal in order to use and use and steal and steal and use and, and it's just there, you know, there's no other option. So mm-hmm. all right. Uh Robert, it's really been a pleasure talking to you and I appreciate you coming on the show. And and I, I congratulate, congratulate you on your, <laughs> your fine career. What are you doing now? You're not a guy that's retired to the golf course or fishing stories or meeting with your buds telling war stories. I got to know that. What are you doing now?
1: Yeah. Well, most of the time I'm, I am um, uh, either speaking someplace around the world. I just got back from Cairo. I'll be going to um, another country in Europe here in the not too distant future. And um, so I, I, I try to get out to the private sector, to those people who are in the anti-money laundering compliance field to inspire them uh, and to share with them information about how to identify risk and how to mitigate risk, and you know how how do you tell whether a the duck that's quacking and walking like a duck is really a duck? And and so I, I try to uh, provide um, education. I guess I call it edutainment because um, I mix it with the the infiltrator story and the betrayal story, and um, and but then try try to really deliver to them real information about uh, the types of companies, the geographic areas, the types of products that are linked to uh, big time money laundering. And, and then in addition to that, we're hopefully working on, well, we are working on um, with uh, Amazon studios uh, an effort with a small team here to see if we can't turn the betrayal yeah. into a screenplay for a sequel um, of the infiltrator. So those are the major things that, uh, that I'm doing now. I'm, playing with the idea of writing a, a fiction um, uh, law enforcement uh, novel so we'll see if if that happens
0: all right oh one last question did you meet Brian Cranston did you like kind of coach him and, and things like that well I mean I, I wouldn't say I coached him but i I, I spent a
1: lot of time with brian okay. and, and um, uh, <laughs> it's a really interesting phenomenon being the author of a nonfiction Book and then being with people who are fictionalizing it to a certain extent <laughs> on the it. screen. I've heard um, this
0: before. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the
1: producer absolutely hated me because <laughs> when I'm around and I'm making <laughs> suggestions about what might be better in the screenplay and that type of thing, it takes time to make yeah. those adjustments, and time is money. Whereas the talent, the actors and the director. Love it, and they're yeah. sponges. Yeah. So I mean, even when I was there on the shoots, <laughs> I, if you remember the one of the last scenes is Brian Cranston at Innisbrook Golf and Country Club, and he's standing there in the tuxedo, and then behind him, Roberto Alcaino, played by Benjamin Bratt, comes in yeah. out of the cold, and they had some kind of corny line that he said, and I said, you know, Brian, I would never say that. You know, we were just kind of talking whispering on the side and and um and uh, he goes well what would you have said if if Alcano showed up and i said i probably would have said it's wonderful to see you but there's a part of me that wishes you weren't here and he goes man we're using that so yeah, I, so that became
0: that became was, that, was became that line yeah yep. that was in there cool
1: that <laughs> became that line so um yeah all right but he's a he's a great guy <laughs> yeah a, oh well good that's good down man. down to earth really cared Cared about me and my views, mm. cared about my wife, spent time talking to my wife, spent time talking to my kids, was very, very mindful of the importance of trying to capture the mm. chemistry of a law enforcement family going through this
0: type of an ordeal. And, and I
1: think he did a great,
0: great job. Yeah, I do, too. He's a great actor, but he did do a good job. With that part of it, because that was a significant part of the uh the story was your yeah. family that, that struggle. And and every undercover, long-term undercover I've interviewed has has had the same trouble. It's it's tough on families, man. It's really hard on families. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Robert, I appreciate it. And I wish you the best of luck in all your future endeavors.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be on your show.
0: All right. Well, folks, that was Robert Mazer wrote. The Infiltrator, and made a movie called uh, The Infiltrator with Brian Cranston, and his new book, The Betrayal, The True Story of My Brush with Death in the World of Narcos and Launders. I appreciate y'all tuning in this second part of a two-part episode interview of him. He has a lot of things to say, both about his work uh, as an undercover officer and an undercover agent, and you know, the efficacy of our drug policy and and where we have placed our money and and maybe some ways to put our money to better use uh, in fighting this uh, horrible problem of drug addiction in the united states and and really throughout the world but we're more concerned with the united states and and you know as and i'm all for recovery Uh, i think you all know that by now ptsd if you're a vet go to uh, uh, the uh, va hotline or the VA website, find the VA hotline. If you've got PTSD problems, and if you've got any kind of drug or alcohol problems, you know, there's a lot of help available for you out there. And, and that's part of the, uh, uh, the way we're going to solve this problem. And, and the other part is, as he was saying, is, is clamp down on these uh, big banks that are laundering all this money and, and making it uh, okay for these international criminals to, you know, make more and more money. Because they can't do it alone. They cannot do it without legitimate businesses being corrupted. So thanks a lot, you guys. And keep coming back.